0: You're listening to Plenary Session. On this week's episode of Plenary Session, we're going to get back to what we do best, talking about hard-hitting research that appeared in recent high-profile journals, including Lancet Oncology and two paired papers in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm going to talk about Bill Cap, a study with a p-value of 0.097. And that p-value these days is considered close enough and good enough and practice changing by many Although I have a few bones to pick with that argument. Next, I'll be talking to Sven Olsen. Yes, he's back by popular demand. Sven Olsen is a classical hematologist who's going to take you through recent studies that test whether or not DOAX should be administered to patients with advanced or metastatic malignancies and high Corona scores as a prophylactic agent against VTE. You won't want to miss our dissection of these clinical trials. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, do us a favor and recommend it to a friend. Plenary Session wants to grow its audience, and the best way to do so is to get a personal recommendation from someone you know or trust. So recommend it to someone and have them check out an episode. Also, consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com allows you to support artists or podcasts that you appreciate, and if you like this podcast, that's a great way to show your support. Finally. If you haven't yet gone onto the iTunes Store and written us a review, we greatly appreciate it. Tell us what you think about this podcast and give us five stars if we've earned it. All right, let's talk about Bill Cap. compared with observation in resected biliary tract cancer, a randomized, controlled, multicenter phase three trial. Now, there's a lot of talk about this study on the internet, and many people are saying Bill Cap is the new justification for safe in patients with resected biliary tract cancer. I think there are a few things to say about this paper and a few things to say about this interpretation of the data, which I find quite problematic. So you should know this is a randomized controlled trial of 447 patients, which took a fair bit of time to enroll about a decade, and they followed patients who had had resected biliary tract cancer. They were randomized to oral sibaycitabine or observation, and they were followed with the primary endpoint of, well, it depends on who you ask. But many people say the primary endpoint is overall survival. Well, in reading this paper, I thought of many things, and I've read some of the arguments online as to why the intention-to-treat overall survival p-value 0.097 should be treated as if this is real results that are practice changing Um, because the magnitude of benefit is so great, they argue. Well, as I read this paper and um, looked over some things, I realized there were many things to say, so let's hit a few points. One, People say that this is a rare cancer. Biliary tract cancer is an uncommon cancer in high-income countries. There are 9,000 new cases per year in the USA. That means it's not easy to do randomized trials, and you're lucky you have this one, and you're lucky you have at least two other ones that are published, and you're lucky you have one more that's coming in a little bit. You're lucky to have anything, because it's only 9,000 people per year in the United States, and that's quite low. Well, I do wanna point out that there's another disease out there called Hodgkin's lymphoma, which has an annual incidence of 8,100 patients per year in the United States. And that's a disease for which there are many, many randomized control trials. So simply saying that we can't do randomized trials in biliary tract cancer because it's rare, doesn't hold a lot of water when we do many randomized control trials in Hodgkin's lymphoma. Okay, next, what is the primary endpoint of this study? Well, I just tweeted out a list of things that I had found. There's an abstract from 2011 in ASCO where the authors of this study say the primary endpoint is progression-free survival, which they abbreviate DFS, which is really disease-free survival, but that's okay, at two years. Later, they say it's overall survival at two years. Clinicaltrials.gov says it's two-year overall survival as a primary endpoint. Clinicaltrials.gov says five-year overall survival is the secondary endpoint. The manuscript does a power calculation for two-year overall survival, a landmark overall survival. They say overall survival would be without the treatment, something like 20%, and with the treatment would be 32%, so we're powered to detect a 12% increase, which corresponds to a hazard ratio of 0.71, with a two-sided significance level of 5% and 80% power. So that's what the authors say, that we're looking at a two-year OS, trying to boost that two-year OS. Of course, in the paper, the way they analyze it is not that per se. They're not looking at a landmark two-year survival. They're looking at, after all participants have been watched for two years, what is the difference in overall survival? One of the things people say here is that even though that p-value is not significant, the magnitude of benefit is really large. After all, the median overall survival was 36.4 months in the observation group, and it was 51.1 months in the intervention group, and that is quite large. You know, We shouldn't dismiss a very large benefit. But what I would point out is that 36.4 and 51.1 months, if that benefit, that difference was maintained across the survival curve, the hazard ratio would be 0.71, because that's the ratio of those two numbers, and it would be significant. But the fact is the hazard ratio is 0.81, it's not that. In fact, the median is just a point on the curve where the curves happen to drift apart quite a far ways, and it is not the same difference throughout the curve, it's actually much closer. The two-year overall survival landmark, the curve is actually not that far apart. There's hardly any units on this axis, so I can't even tell you what it is, but it's nowhere near what I think they had thought they would see. The next point. Uh, one of the things that the authors do to bolster their analysis is look at the per-protocol analysis. They say, like, if you look at just the people who are able to start therapy and tolerated safe for one month, then the difference actually looks more impressive. Well, you can't do that, and that's actually a very, very foolish thing to do. The reason we use a randomized controlled trial to make inferences is because we know that if therapies are prescribed in the real world, there may be confounding. People who may be healthier are more likely to get those therapies than people who don't get those therapies. A per-protocol analysis literally inserts all of the confounding that you thought you had gotten rid of by randomization back into your study. Because the only people you're looking at in the intervention arm are people who tolerated, say, for one month. So those may be people who are less frail, who have more physiologic reserve, who have less aggressive cancer, who are more likely to tolerate side effects. You are literally inserting selection bias into your randomized study, which was done because you cared about selection bias. So, it's a very foolish thing to do. And for superiority studies, we can talk about non-inferiority studies another day, but for superiority studies, it is a known peril. Uh, you shouldn't put stock on your per-protocol analysis, especially when what it means is that, you know, as the authors say, 4% of people couldn't tolerate this drug for the first month. So you're excluding sort of a non-trivial group of people. The next thing I'd say, people say that one of the reasons we have to adopt this is that we don't have a lot of options here. Um, There are not a lot of things that have succeeded. Um, Gemcitabine versus observation was a negative study. Gemcitabine and oxaliplatin was recently a negative study. And this is the way the authors describe it in the introduction. This is the Gemox study. Overall survival was not significantly different between the treatment groups, hazard ratio 1.08. However, a large effect was seen. OS of 50.8 months in the surveillance and 75.8 months in the oxali group. Wow. they seem to have a habit of saying that an effect size is large when it's non-significant and thus should not really be commented upon. Um, they did that for Gemox as well in their introduction and they, they make some other mistakes later, which I'll talk about. But I actually think you know, we have few things that work in this setting. Argument actually cuts the other way so in other words, we have a number of agents that are active in biliary cancer, gemcitabine, oxaliplatin, cisplatin, um, 5-FU. Um, when you have agents that are active and you've done randomized trials on those agents and they are consistently coming up negative in the adjuvant setting, and you run one more randomized trial of one other agent, which who would have thought that this is the one you'll get that P of .097 on? Nobody would have thought that. Um, you run another randomized trial, you get a P-value that's you know not uh, .5, not point two Um, so how do you interpret this new study do you say oh well it's been so difficult to succeed in this disease that this is the closest we're ever gonna get let's take it which is what I think people are doing or should you interpret it to mean even though we've had many many active drugs in this setting all the trials are negative. Ergo, the pretest probability a new active drug actually improves meaningful outcomes is even lower than what it might be in another disease type, such as colon cancer, for which there are several drugs that are active and effective in the adjuvant setting. But in this setting, it's probably even lower. So when you run another trial and you get some spurious um, happenstance difference in OS, as was seen in this case, um, is it more likely the case that this is the one miraculous drug that cytamine somehow magically improves outcomes in this disease, even though it is, you know, not the most active drug, um, you know, and even though it's really, no, no one would have guessed it would be safe cytobine rather than oxali at the outset, um, or is it the case that these are all truly negative studies, and this drug is really no better, and this was just the fluke trial that happened to get uh, P.097? I think, in fact, it is the latter explanation that is the most parsimonious explanation. Um, you are proving the pretest probability of success is low, and this study doesn't get you any further. I think it's worth highlighting that in this Bill Kapp study that quality of life is worse if you get safe versus observation. I start to have some doubts along the way that the authors of this Bill Kapp study are familiar with or understand statistical analysis because they show a forest plot of many, many subgroups. And then they say this in the intention to treat population, the benefit of safe was indicated in men and those in poorly differentiated disease. There was no statistical evidence of heterogeneity. So they say it's indicated in men because the confidence interval in men does not cross one, uh, although the hazard ratio point estimate is 0.7, and in women it's 0.9, but the p-value for interaction or heterogeneity is 0.27. In other words, the interaction coefficient is not significant. So they're acting as if these subgroups are meaningful rather than they are merely the drift of chance. And that is, I think, inconsistent with the interpretation of the p-value for heterogeneity. what do I think is going on? I'm not sure at all that these authors, um, you know, want to play by any traditional rules of how do you interpret studies. They write about Bill Cap. This provides evidence that safe cytokine can improve overall survival. It does not. The p-value is not significant. Um, although the overall survival and primary endpoint analyzed did not reach statistical significance, the sensitivity analysis and the per-protocol analysis uh, showed benefits. So therefore, you know, it's got to work. They also say, we note that the control group in a current European adjuvant study has been changed to Um That's only because they've been very good at lobbying and persuading people. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about this 0.097. I think for people who think 0.097 is close enough, I think the real paper you need to read is a paper entitled Trap of Trends to Statistical Significance by John Wood and colleagues that appeared in the BMJ. And here the authors do something very clever. They analyze what would happen if you took a study with a p-value of 0.1, which is really what this study is, um, 0.097, 0.1, and you added more data. So for people who say it's underpowered, actually, with the median OS, that you cite of 36 and 51 months, that ratio being 0.71, it was not underpowered to detect a big benefit. It was perfectly powered to detect that benefit were it real. But in fact, that benefit is not real. It just happened to be by fluke, the point on the survival curve that those two points have drifted furthest apart. Uh, And that hazard ratio is not the same across the curve at any other point. So, you know, um, if that magnitude of benefit were as big as you think it is, this study would have detected that as significant, but it didn't because it isn't. Um, So if you take a study with a p-value of 0.1 and you increase the sample size by 20% or 50%, there's a 50% chance the study is still not going to be significant, okay? If you took a p-value of 0.1 and you replicated the experiment with the identical sample size, analyzed independently, there's a 60% chance it's gonna be non-significant. So this entire idea that trends towards significance are gonna get to significance, I think, is faulty. Maybe about a third of the time, it'll become less significant, a third of the time it'll stay insignificant between that 0.05 and 0.1, and a third of the time it might drift towards significance, okay? So it's certainly not the case that just because you add more people, you can assume that that P of 0.097 get smaller more stringent Um, in fact if one looks at the totality of the evidence in biliary tree cancer in the adjuvant space one would conclude overwhelmingly that this is a negative trial all of the active agents of which no one would think one is better than the other have failed in randomized controlled trials One of them has a p-value of 0.49, one has a p-value of 0.7, and one has a p-value of 0.09. That's because of play of chance. That's not because the sapcitabine is the miraculous drug among the group, okay? You're interpreting it incorrectly. The next thing I'd say, some people say that we should have a low bar because this is a dire condition. Resected biliary tree cancer, as we know from the control group of this study, has a median overall survival of about three years, and that is a dire situation. And therefore, we should be more likely to just give things a shot. Well, I guess I wish to suggest that you don't actually do that. You may say that's why you're doing that here, but you're not practicing consistently. For instance, metastatic breast cancer. Um, Some risk groups of metastatic prostate cancer have a median overall survival of 36 months. If I invent a new breast cancer drug and I do a randomized control trial on frontline metastatic breast cancer and I get a p-value of 0.097 in a similar population that is at risk of death, No one is gonna adopt my drug. The FDA is not gonna approve my drug. You're not gonna use my drug. Okay? Um, Even though the risk of the bad event is comparable. The next thing I would say is, I'm not sure I buy into this philosophy that because a disease has few options, we are more willing to embrace things that have unproven or uncertain evidence base. In fact, let me just ask this question. Um, it is clearly the case that pancreatic cancer has fewer options than metastatic breast cancer. Um, do we prescribe more cupping for pancreatic cancer? Do we prescribe more acupuncture, uh, more herbal teas for pancreatic cancer than, than breast cancer? I, I doubt that that's the case. Um, I suspect the use of some of these unproven modalities may even go the other way, but it's certainly not the case that oncologists are more willing to attempt unproven things simply because there are fewer options. They may be more willing to attempt unproven things that fall within the canon of Western medicine. They may be more likely to send foundation medicine and send and prescribe some off-label pazopanib, um, but. If one were to think about it, it is just arbitrary that one is choosing unproven medicine from one canon rather than unproven medicine from another canon. Uh, it's all unproven medicine or proven medicine. That's the real distinction that matters. One more point about Bill Cap. So one abstract says DFS is the primary endpoint. One says two-year landmark OS is. One says it's just OS after people had been in the study for at least two years. Um, The authors write in their discussion, an unintended consequence of the protocol, which was acceptable when written in 2005, can be criticized. For example, there was no fully defined statistical analysis plan when the study started, but it is mandatory in a 2019 study. When you have no pre-planned statistical plan, when you are changing what you say the primary endpoint is based on the different website I read you are giving yourself the opportunity to cherry pick more and more opportunities to become successful the authors here are desperately interpreting other negative studies as positive that has a large magnitude of benefit forget about that confidence interval that's as wide as the golden gate bridge um you know it 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 is a big benefit um here they don't have a pre-planned statistical plan they're playing fast and loose with that they don't even achieve a p-value less than 0.05 which is the one non-subjective benchmark we use for clinical trials um in the modern age the last thing I would say, if you believe the Bill cap study should change practice because you know we don't have many options because um, it's close enough, um, then I think you should extend your philosophy to every other example where the p-value was just outside the Uh, Pre-specified statistical plan. Um, The confidence interval may lean the way you want it to lean, Um, even if there may be many, many other studies, of course, that are negative um, that show that this is really unlikely to be the case. But, um, you know, and I named a few. I named randomized trials of Pembro and liver cancer. You know, it's it's not uh, it's not quite there, but, you know, it's close enough. Uh, the the follow-up of the study of bevacizumab plus interferon versus interferon in renal cell cancer. It's close enough. You know, as long as we're going to have an it's-close-enough philosophy, we can just extend that broadly, which means that we can go back, and good news for the FDA, they can approve far more drug approvals than the 40-some drug approvals they approved last year. They can increase that number, and everyone will be very, very happy. Yet, yeah, you see, I think the Bill Cap study is a nice study that follows the Abandoned Statistical Significance Study, um, the Abandoned Statistical Significance essay uh, that appeared a couple of weeks ago, because it shows that oncologists will grab at anything. Um, they They will take anything. If we abandon statistical significance, no one will ever take a study with a stringent p-value and say, The magnitude of benefit is too small we can't have fda drug approval we can't use this agent and the reason they won't do that is because they don't do that and they could do that in the current world but they don't do that instead the only effect that it will have is on the other side of the coin all of the studies that didn't meet statistical significance like bill cap a study where you took one of the several active cytotoxic agents all of which are currently or have been tested in randomized trials in two randomized trials Drugs that work in the adjuvant setting in other tumor types. Gemcitabine works in pancreas cancer. Oxaliplatin works in colon cancer. These are drugs that work in other adenocarcinoma in the adjuvant setting. They don't work here. One of the three trials gets a p-value that's not significant. That's a 0.1. Um, no one would have picked it's the cytobine versus the oxali versus the gem at the outset oncologists will grasp at the one thing that got closest to the mark rather than look at the totality of the data and think, wow, this is likely a tumor type that, for which there's an uphill battle for a cytotoxic agent to work. And therefore, all of these studies are negative. Some of them drifted closer to that magical p-value we like, and others didn't drift so close by chance alone. Some of the other reasons you think this might be chance alone is that the authors took a great deal of time to look at their data. They didn't have a pre-planned statistical plan. There are inconsistencies in the clinicaltrials.gov, prior abstracts, and the manuscript itself. They are touting a per-protocol analysis. They don't know how to use an interaction coefficient to interpret subgroups. These are all things that make me doubt that this is a real finding and make me believe that the authors are willing to grasp at anything. and anything that's even close, they're going to try to celebrate. I'm a little surprised that the journal allowed them to spin a negative study in this way. I'm a little surprised that the community is buying the way the authors have spun it when it that when buying that is inconsistent with how we treat many many other things in oncology. Um, it's inconsistent with how we treat metastatic breast cancer, which is a similar median overall survival. It's inconsistent with our, you know, as I point out, our use of alternative medicine, which is an unproven modality that we're not using more in cases where we have fewer cytotoxic options. It's inconsistent with so much of our behavior, and yet many have embraced it. Bill Cap study is a negative study, one of three negative studies in a cancer where unfortunately all of the studies in the adjuvant space have been negative these studies need to be held to a high standard because giving chemotherapy to this group of people clearly lowers quality of life and whether or not it improves survival is unknown. And to tout a recent paper by Bashal and I that appeared in the Annals of Oncology that's entitled Making Adjuvant Therapy Decisions with Uncertain Data. We talk about this exact thing. You can go to www.vinaykprasad.com papers and uh, read a, a copy of the, of the manuscript. I guess those are my thoughts overall. It's not that rare a cancer. It's a little bit more common than Hodgkin's disease. We would not accept this in Hodgkin's disease. We should not accept this here. It's a negative study. If you made it bigger and you got more data, there's a good chance it would be less significant. That's what the paper Trap of Trends to Statistical Significance shows you in the BMJ, and I encourage you to read that as well. All right. On that positive note, we will turn to our next topic. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Sven Olson. Sven Olson's back to talk about thromboprophylaxis for patients who happen to suffer from cancer with the new direct oral anticoagulants. Dr. Olson, it's a pleasure to have you back on Plenary Session.
1: Yeah, it's great to be back. Let's make this uh, a recurring thing with
0: hematology. Let's make it uh, with the um, the or... Or should we call it the classical hematology no, section? No, we've been over this. It's <laughs> classical. Let's call it... Let's call it um, we'll 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 leave that up to the listeners to I decide.
1: I can't wait for the day when I can just say I'm a classical hematologist and not have to then qualify that statement and say well mean, that's what it means. You mean you mean not you mean benign. Classical. Got no, it. Got classical. It. Um so <laughs> the other
0: thing I wanted to bring up with you um what time were we supposed to record this?
1: Yeah, I was waiting for this to happen. Uh-huh. What about t- 15 minutes ago uh-huh. by my clock. Uh-huh. And uh where where were you? Well, you assume I was home doing nothing, but I was, in fact, doing some work at home, preparing for this very podcast. Uh Uh-huh. You were doing work at home.
0: In the quiet of my home. Um, Does uh, work uh, rhyme with Netflix? (laughs) 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 Well, okay. So you were preparing for this podcast. Good. I've read these two studies. I noticed some interesting things. So this is rivaroxaban for thromboprophylaxis in high-risk ambulatory patients with cancer and apixaban to prevent venous thromboembolism in patients with cancer. And these came out in the February 21st, 2019 issue with a paired editorial. And that editorial was quite laudatory, was it not? Uh, It was measured, I would say it was measured. Measured, but positive. Yeah. More positive than than how I'm gonna weigh down on this, do you think? I suspect so. And I wonder how you're going to weigh down on this. Okay. Let me ask you something. Before we talk about these papers, tell us a little bit. Um, I guess we need to know a few fact or at least factoids for for the listening public. We need to know, one, um, that patients with cancer uh, have a certain predisposition for venous thromboembolism. It can present as a DVT or a PE. Obviously, PE is um, probably more of a life-threatening event than a DVT, although DVT can cause a great deal of discomfort and, and morbidity, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a PE or DVT, um, we will for sure anticoagulate you. And we now have some evidence that suggests that DOAX would be safe and uh, effective in patients who have active malignancies. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. There are now three randomized trials of DOAX that uh, we actually meta-analyzed them and that will be presented at an upcoming conference here next month. Uh, Dr. Derek Tao and I did that. and. Uh, yeah, so there's there's plenty of actual evidence now that says, suggests they're effective and the safety is sort of the big question issue.
0: Derek Tao has meta-analyzed something for me as well because Derek Tao is good at meta-analysis. Yep. And um, and he's meta-analyzed something for me too, but we can't talk about that yet, but we will talk about <laughs> it someday when it's published because it's gonna be a bit, bit spicy. Um, so, okay, so, so if you have a DVT or um, uh, a PE and you happen to have an active malignancy, um, it would be reasonable, uh, well, certainly you would anticoagulate such a person, and yes. your choice would be low molecular weight heparin or it would be uh, a direct antithrombin, a direct um, anticoagulant. I don't want to say antithrombin yeah. because some are 10A. Okay, so you would do that. Um, and there has also been a lot of enthusiasm to be able to put patients with active malignancy on an anticoagulant before they develop a VTE um, because it is large market share. No, I mean it is because it is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, is that sort of philosophy.
1: Would you fair was that fair to say? Yes. Yes. This has been looked at for geez, decades I think. Decades. Um, There's so much data to go through and what's been tried and risk scores that have been developed and sort of culminated now in the DOAC trials. So it's a logical
0: progression. Uh Uh-huh. And then previously, perhaps most recently, it was tried with um Subcutaneous injectable low molecular weight heparin or heparinoids, um, including and oxyparin, uh, dalteparin. Mm-hmm. Um, that has one clear downside, which is that if you have cancer and you have an active malignancy, and you also have to inject yourself every day, that just doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. It sounds quite unpleasant, which is fair to say.
1: Yeah, especially since you know this is sort of like a unclear duration. You know, if someone's in the hospital and they're admitted for a week, let's say. That's different than if they're getting chemo for months and months, and you're asking them to inject themselves every day. Mm-hmm. It's annoying. And, um, but those other trials
0: were published, and they do show that if you did use prophylaxis, there was a very small
1: reduction in the rate of VTE, was there not? Yeah. Th- there's been two, well, lots of trials and two meta-analyses, in, both in Cochrane. Uh, one of them was in 2012 and one of them was 2016 and both of them sort of showed the same thing. There was like, you cut the risk in half of a, uh, of a symptomatic DVT and your number needed to treat ends up being about 60 for all patients. But if you kind of, we'll get, maybe we can talk about this a little more, but mm-hmm. in a higher risk with these, uh, risk assessment models, that number needed to treat actually goes down to somewhere like 15 to 20. I see. It's pretty compelling.
0: If the risk assessment models um, worked as well in the derivation and validation cohort, which we're going to yes. talk about. But, <laughs> but the other thing, I mean, I think that's interesting. Is first, you quoted me 50 percent, and if you ever say one more relative risk on this podcast, I'm going to throw you out of this room. So fast. no, oh, I didn't <laughs> know that was a <laughs> that was a no no. It's a forbidden. It's forbidden. No, I'm just kidding. But the number needed to treat, of course, is the absolute. It's based on the absolute risk, and you're saying it's something like 60. Mm-hmm. Good, because I noticed in the editorial. That's why I, I called it sort of a rah-rah cheer, cheerleader editorial, because the first thing they lead with is the relative risk. Which which obviously listeners should know the relative risk tells you what is the percent reduction in the event rate from, you know, from X percent to Y percent, what's that change, um, but it doesn't tell you anything about how likely you are to experience the event. And that's why it can be really misleading because somebody could make something that reduces your risk of being hit by lightning by 50%. But of course, your risk of being hit by lightning is quite low. It's on the order of what, one in a million or something like that. So that's not really something you might want to do if it involves a subcutaneous injection every day for many, many years, right. um, even though it's a 50% reduction in being hit by lightning, um, because it's not something you really worry about. So it has to do with sort of the frequency of the event. Okay. All that aside, now let's jump into these current studies. Um, uh, I found a few things. You probably have a lot of things. I don't know. You want to? Why don't you? I'll, I'll give you the, the first. Uh, I'll give you the opening salvo. You. Uh, I don't know. Tell us what. Tell us. I don't know. Summarize these papers and tell me. Tell me what you think.
1: Sure. So they were. I mean, globally, they're looking at the, the same the same uh, question: is uh, ambulatory patients who are going to be treated for cancer, uh, is there uh, a benefit to putting them on prophylactic blood thinners to prevent all clots, so symptomatic and asymptomatic clots? So in both of these trials, um, they stratified based on, or they included patients based on this corona score. And I think this is the first point I think that needs to be discussed before we get any further. Okay, let's do it. So first of all, developing a score. That then colloquially gets your name behind it. It's a good thing. Is a good thing. It's right? a good thing. Yeah. So where's it's, the Olsen score? Uh, one day, one day. But uh, you know, this is called it's it's called the Karana score. It, it, in various places, it's just a score by Karana at all. But this is the one that's validated the most and endorsed by the most kind of major societies. So ISTH, ASCO both endorse it. Mm-hmm. But this was developed uh, based on several criteria. Uh, that stratify you for VTE risk, and it's based on the type of tumor you have.
0: Yeah, such as uh, GI malignancies get two points, right? And then right.
1: automatically, you're high risk if you have a GI malignancy. Mm-hmm. And
0: by GI malignancy, we mean cancers of the pancreas, um, the biliary tree, uh, the esophagus, the stomach, uh, and uh, and the colon.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think actually they they specified it in that score to be just gastric or pancreatic. Oh, I see. If I'm not mistaken. Okay. But yeah. Generally, we we consider them all kind
0: of in the same. Good, because I was about to go on a rant about how I don't think colon is the same risk. Is um yeah. as sort of gastric and pancreatic. Okay, good. Okay, so, that's, so, so that's they actually one. do specify it as as upper GI. Okay,
1: right. And then there's also some hematologic parameters: your hematocrit, your platelet count, your white count, and then your BMI. Interestingly, and uh, so
0: and so, what is it? BMI up is is a higher risk. Yeah. Um, hemoglobin low is a higher risk.
1: Yes. And um, Platelets high is a high risk.
0: Platelets high is a high risk. Well, I guess it's basically a acute phase reactant sort of um, thrombotic potential. Yeah.
1: One kind of criticism of the score sometimes is that this is. So super variable throughout the course of your treatment. So you calculate it once, and that sort of gives you a number, and that's what you use. You calculate it right after day six
0: of cytotoxic chemotherapy. What do you think? Then the platelets yeah, are... Yeah, sure. Not okay, right? That's not <laughs> yeah. what you want to do. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Right. Okay, so that's one of the things that it's using. Um, some variables that we all know have some flux to them.
1: Right. Okay. So this basically, they they it's a dichotomous thing, and they stratify you initially into a score of three or more or two or less. And in the initial trials uh, that made this score, if you had a high risk, you were somewhere around 7 to 10% six-month VTE risk. And if you were low or two or less on this score, you were maybe like 2 to 3%. This has been found, I think, even just recently, there's a big meta-analysis of patients using the Corona score to find this. And actually, it kind of underestimates your risk, it seems like, because even in the low-risk people, as we saw in these two trials, which we can talk about, the most of them were score two or lower, and they had a uh, and the placebo arm had a risk of like 10%. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that's the one that mostly is used. Although, uh, in practice, I'm not sure how much it's actually used. It seems like, uh, you know, anecdotally, I've never actually applied this. Never and talking it, yeah. to different people here that I work with, I, I've never heard of anyone else applying it. I tried to find some data to find how often this is actually done, uh, but I... I I couldn't really find it, to be honest. You mean how
0: often a doctor calculates a corona mm-hmm. score? I think it's almost never. But to be yeah. honest with you, before these studies and hopefully after these studies, um, no one actually does prophylax patients um, with uh, for VT prophylaxis who have active malignancy.
1: Well, that's what I was wondering: is how often is that actually done in oh, practice? I see. Right, yeah. yeah, and I don't know that. Um, I don't know, but the it answer. seems like I've never seen nobody it. talks about it.
0: Nobody talks about. It. I've never seen anyone do it, and no one's ever talked about it. Right. Yeah. So, okay. so
1: this is what was used in these two trials, but there's you know at least five or six other risk scores, and these have all been kind of looked at in trials, and uh, you know there've been modifications of the corona score, adding other labs, things that we don't always get, sometimes things we do get, like D dimers are added and P-selectin, which I don't think we can actually order here. Yeah. Uh, some of them actually incorporate chemo, which I think is important. And actually, that brings up another point of all these evolving therapies that we don't actually know the thrombotic risk. And some of them we do, and we don't include like TKIs and VEGF inhibitors and you know CDK inhibitors. Uh, and, and then Rev- others, revlimid. Revlimid. Yep. Yep. Um, although, so what you're saying
0: is that, it, you know, one of the risk factors for thrombosis may actually be the agent we're giving you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And then there's that-
1: there's data that things like cisplatin is you know, more thrombogenic than other platinums and other, you know, cytotoxic chemo. So that's included in some scores. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, whether the tumor is uh, metastatic or not. And so those are all things that have been looked at in other scores. Uh, and there's actually, some of them seem to predict your risk better than others, and the corona score is not always included in there. Um, but again, since it's the most widely endorsed, it was used in these trials. I see. But that's an important point to remember, and uh, if that's what's used to recruit patients, yep, that has a big bearing on what we see as the results, so.
0: Fair enough, okay. So we use corona score or
1: grader to be enrolled in these studies. Both studies had the similar inclusion criteria. And that's also kind of curious because the, three or higher is historically considered high risk. And in this these two studies, two or higher was considered high risk. What about market share, Sven Olson?
0: Uh, actually, actually, I don't know the answer to that question, but of 100 people with um, you know, advanced or metastatic cancers, um, what percent
1: fall within each of the corona risk scores? Um, well, just based on the re- recruitment here, like 60, 70% of patients were two. Two, right, yeah, so, so I
0: guess it probably does allow them to get a lot more patients. Yeah, yeah, so that might be why they extended it. Yeah. Okay. So they. So okay. So that's the population they looked at. One of the studies, the rivaroxaban study, on entry to the study, you had a screening scan. We wanted to make sure you didn't have asymptomatic VTE. Right. Now you couldn't have had a symptomatic VTE because if you had symptomatic VTE, somebody presumably would have worked it up. Right in the epixaban study there was no screening scan at least i don't see it written in the in the in the paper
1: they specifically did not they that's did not. been other people have commented on that too they did not do that
0: well i guess i would say that um, we'll talk a little bit about the endpoint but i'm comfortable with no screening scan because I also, I'm comfortable with that on the back end too. So we're gonna talk about that. But I guess I would say that if you're gonna use a screening scan on the back end, then you really wanna know at the front end what percent of people had clot going in. So that's right. the rivaroxaban gets the point there. But whether or not you wanna use a screening scan on the back end, I have a few strong thoughts on that. Okay, so so that's what they did. That's the population they looked at. And they were both sort of shooting for I don't know, I forget my power calculation, but something like 700 participants or 1,000 participants or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, The endpoint they care about is asymptomatic VTE, so they're gonna do some screening scans on the back end. They did screening ultrasonography of the legs. Did they do screening PE scans? You know, that's a good question, I don't know. I didn't see that. And okay, so that's the asymptomatic component of the endpoint. Then there's the symptomatic component of the endpoint, which just means you have to see a doctor because some of those people are gonna get worked up. Right. So is it fair for me to call this, these are crossover trials? Yeah, basically. Yeah, I guess it's sort of equivalent, yeah. Yeah, because if you have the event of interest, you need to be crossed over, and it would be unethical to deprive you of that crossover. Right. Well, some of the chemotherapists and the oncologists could take a lesson from from (laughs) that, because I don't know if we always cross over the way we ought to be crossing over. But at least they do that here.
1: Okay. And crossover meaning, you know, not only on a blood thinner, but on a higher dose, because these are all lower prophylactic doses. That's fair to say, yeah.
0: Okay, what's next on your summary?
1: Well, I think uh, starting at the patient populations, there's a lot of big differences that could affect the outcomes here. So some of them that I noticed were the proportion of patients who had these supposedly higher-risk cancers, like GI. You know, in the Cassini, and I guess I'll refer to these now, Cassini is the river rivaroxaban trial. AVERT was the apixaban trial. Mm-hmm. Cassini enrolled, like, half, of, half the patients had gastric kind of GE junction cancers. And in AVERT, they had they specified they had about 12% with pancreatic gastric, they didn't really specify, uh, but that alone is a pretty substantial difference. Um, and, you know, the, the primary outcome of Cassini, I'll jump ahead a little bit, yeah. was not statistically significant in the intention to treat population. And this may be, I mean, I'm just going to list a few reasons why that might be the case, why I suspect that might be the case. But one is, yeah, the uh, amount of high-risk patients with high-risk tumors was much higher in Cassini. Also, they had um, a disproportionately higher number of people with prior clots in the uh, DOAC group versus in the placebo group in Cassini. So like 3% of people had a prior clot mm-hmm, in Cassini mm-hmm. that were on red rock span.
0: Wait, but talk me to, through that logic. I'm not sure I see that logic. So I see I, I, I see your point that it appears to me that there's a lot of GE junction and pancreas cancer in Cassini trial, yeah. and there's less of that in AVERT, um, but in my mind, what that means is the event rate would be higher uh, and actually would favor the Cassini.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true to some respect, but... Um, You also don't know whether that's affecting other things than just their clotting risk. Uh Uh-huh, I see. So is that affecting what their mortality would be? Competing risk or something. I see what you're saying. Yeah.
0: It may affect the competing risk, death before clot. So I see what you're saying. That's true. And then the other thing is the Cassini is the trial where they had the baseline scan and they dropped 5% of people on the entry. Okay, fair enough. So Cassini uh, didn't quite meet statistical significance. Uh, But uh, these days, ever since Bill Cap, I've learned that... um, that actually you don't have to be statistically significant anymore. Close enough is good (laughs) enough. Close enough is good enough.
1: Well, I mean, and part of this is, you know, statistical significance may not be reached in some of these endpoints, like the major bleeding and everything. But I think the clinical relevance is still important to look at. um, And that's always important with like the bleeding and clotting balance. So let's talk about, and I agree with you. So let's talk about,
0: um, okay, so there's slight differences in the the populations that are enrolled. And, um, and oh, I I should also say Cassini
1: had twice as many people with metastatic disease. So 50% versus 20%, 54 versus 24. That's pretty substantial, too, in my mind. That is substantial. But I, how do you enroll in this study if you don't have metastatic disease? Well, it could be locally advanced or, you know, probably like, uh, I have to look at these specific inclusion criteria, but uh, I believe it was is it unresectable, advanced, unresectable, metastatic. I see. So. so locally advanced.
0: So then, I guess what you're suggesting is that the competing risk may be higher if the metastatic disease burden is higher in the study, mm-hmm. and thus the opportunity to develop VTE is lower. Right. Okay. And then, how often did they screen for clot in the follow-up on these studies? The tri- This is Cassini. The trial visits occurred at week 16, plus or minus seven days, and day 180. Okay, Okay, so two months, uh, four months, and six months, every two months, and at the end of the trial with a window of plus or minus three days, and included screening, compression, ultrasonography of both legs at each visit. Mm -hmm. And then in the other trial, um, the other trial says routine ultrasonography testing was not performed. Apixaban. Well, that but that test they
1: did they had a all they have incidental pulmonary embolism right right i see well they have incidental maybe on surveillance scan yeah on, but they I, didn't yeah. Ha- they must not have had screen clots then. they don't have screen clots and i suppose you know again jumping ahead a little bit the, without a mortality benefit of yeah. either of these trials yeah. then i think the the next thing is the next thing to think about is does it actually help patients feel better and reduce symptomatic dvt and that they do both report you know the incidental or asymptomatic DVT, those are considered to be sort of equivalent risk to symptomatic in the cancer population. And all these guidelines tell you to treat them no matter how subsegmental and incidental they are. But I think they maybe just didn't follow people long enough to know if that equates then these asymptomatic clots to a, to a mortality difference. Maybe that was why.
0: Yeah, the, the mortality from death from any cause when you put the two studies together is like 17% on the DOAC arm, 18% on placebo has a relative risk of 0.92 with a huge confidence interval. It's essentially, you know, Mm -hmm. no difference at all. Okay, so go on. So there's no difference in all-cause mortality. Um, It looks like there were some asymptomatic detected PE uh, in the AVERT study, and it looks like there's clearly asymptomatic both PE and DVT uh, in Cassini. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's where we were. Go on.
1: Uh, And one more, I think, thing that stuck out to me as far as just even the included patients was they... They specified that aspirin use was allowed in both. Mm-hmm. They clarified how many were on it in a vert. And about a quarter of patients in both arms were on aspirin as well. Cassini, I have no clue. But, I mean, that does have some prophylactic benefit in non-cancer patients as well as therapeutic benefit in non-cancer patients mm-hmm. for VTE. So I have to wonder if that Played makes well. a difference too. I don't know. So tell me, what's your overall takeaway of these two papers? So they
0: appear to find some small, maybe one to two to three percentage point difference in VTE, maybe a number needed to treat of what forty, something like that.
1: Yeah, that's what they come out with. And this, uh, the editorial, I like the editorial. I mean, when it broke it down like that, and I sort of looked it back at literature to confirm this, but the number needed to treat of forty. To prevent a clot versus if someone is just admitted to the hospital with, you know, sepsis or pneumonia or whatever, and they get put on prophylactic heparin, the number needed to treat to prevent a clot is somewhere like 20. So there could be an argument that, well, that's, that's double the number. And is it really worth it? Um, you know, I think I still wouldn't know which patients precisely to pick for this is the problem. I think these risk scores are, uh, a little vague and a lot of them include things that I don't routinely check or think about and so I think uh, just my gestalt of like well this guy has a metastatic gastric cancer sure that would probably mean more than than one of these risk scores and as I, as I said earlier there's been actually a week ago a big trial published that um, or a study that looked at all these different scores and their predictive power and the corona score wasn't one of them that was considered to have good predictive power. I guess the other thing that, let's just talk about the Corona score real
0: quick. I mean, I think these trials actually kind of come out pretty critical of the Karana score. Just for instance, you quoted that Cochrane meta-analysis that didn't include these studies, and you had a number needed to treat to prevent to prevent a VTE event of something like, what, 40 to 60 or something like that? Yeah, with all comers. All comers. And with the Karana score enriching, you get to 40, which mm-hmm. is actually pretty close to all comers. So you haven't really enriched that much, right? So it's it sort of kind of shows that the Karana score um, Probably doesn't help you that much. And also, mm-hmm. it doesn't distinguish in these ways that may be meaningful, such as upper GI, um, rip roaring adenocarcinoma of the GE junction or pancreas cancer, which may be huge thrombotic risk, the so called trousseau, you know, the classic trousseau right, phenomenon. Right. Okay, here's the other thing I thought. Um, um, how many times did they do FOBT in this study, Dr. <laughs> Nelson? I don't believe they did it at all. Uh, I think the patients should have been screened at FOBT on entry, exclude the ones with FOBT
1: positive, and screened on exit.
0: Because if you're going to use screen clot as efficacy, you should use screen bleeding.
1: Huh? Yeah, but then huh? you could also make the argument that is F O B T really you know specific to being? Is, does it does it predict risk of bleeding from the GI tract on an anticoagulant? Uh huh. And who? But I guess I would say that um, I know our GI colleagues would would frown upon that of checking that. Oh, of course. I'm not. I mean, I I don't. I don't actually think
0: they should do that. But I think that they shouldn't screen for clot. They shouldn't screen for clot on entry because we're not going to screen for clot in the real world. And they shouldn't screen for clot as an endpoint. This. The question is, can you take people that you see in your clinic with Mm -hmm. variables you actually know? So that's a point that you're making. It has to be the entry has to be variables you actually know. And I don't know what someone's P-selectin is or whatever that is. You know. I yeah, know. I may not even know what that is. Um we can't check that at the VA, I'm fairly certain. <laughs> yeah, and I, I and I would imagine. So, I mean, so let's agree. The inclusion criteria, to make a study relevant for practice, you have to say, if you take people with this sort of um, inclusion criteria who you see in your clinic and you randomize them to um, uh, anticoagulant or not, you improve either their mortality, which in mm-hmm. this case, you're not gonna do that. And exactly, I, d- yep. I doubt you're gonna get there. Or you improve their quality of life. How do you improve their quality of life? You prevent um, an event that bothers quality of life. So by definition, that that has to be a symptomatic PE or symptomatic VTE. And it's not enough to say symptomatic VTE, it has to be the symptom precipitated the workup that led to the diagnosis of VTE. One can imagine they have an asymptomatic clot, then upon further review, the patient endorses some calf pain. Um, And then that could be labeled as sort of a symptomatic VTE in these studies, but that's not really a symptomatic VTE because you kind of had to pull the teeth to get the information out. Um, So that's one of the limitations I see here. That's the clinical question. I wouldn't screen for clots in the back end. All of the trials that screen for clots, I, I really, really bothers me. You know that because I go on a,
1: I go on a ta- well, tizzy when I hear that. I mean pre, post screening. So you know during treatment, that's it's an easy way to sort of get an efficacy signal, right? Yes, it just, yeah, it just, it's, it. of course, the yeah. reason
0: is to boost your endpoint. Right. But it would be like, um, uh, you know, um. It's the equivalent of running at a, car, a trial in people who have suffered a myocardial infarction and have a certain cholesterol level. And the endpoint of this study is like repeat MI or uh, the cholesterol is still high because yeah. that's a risk factor for future MI, is yeah. it not? And asymptomatic clot is a risk factor for future symptomatic clot. So, but of course we would say that that doesn't make any sense at all. I wanna know about the clinical event. Um, so that's my second criticism. And then the reason I use the FOBT is to show that if somebody used FOBT and they showed that the Apixaban arm, 70% of people had positive FOBT stools and only 5%. Mm-hmm. And so then they say incidental bleeding episodes was 100 fold higher, you know, whatever, some 50 fold higher in the Apixaban arm. The public would say, that's crazy. We don't test FOBT in everybody. It's not clinically relevant. And uh, and then we would dismiss that as an endpoint. Um, but that's a safety endpoint, but of course they accept that on the efficacy endpoint standard and that's what you know I think is sort of a I don't know a, di- a distinction the corona score i think that you know this really does suggest that the number needed to treat is not getting a lot better suggesting yeah. that we're not really enriching in the way we
1: hope i mean i think the 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 biggest takeaway i can get from this is the absolute risk is still really low right yes like the absolute the risk is very low the absolute risk is still very low and the risk difference is still very low and that's just it sort of isn't impressive enough to me to do this routinely when these patients, you know, they already are going through chemotherapy or other therapies and on all sorts of crazy drugs they don't really want to be on. And a lot of them could interact with DOAX. A lot of the newer drugs we are prescribing for patients could have drug drug interactions. It's a lot to ask from the patient. And I think without a mortality benefit uh, or a significant, uh, you know, a major decrease in, in symptoms, morbidity, yeah, then I, I, I can't, I'm not buying into it quite yet. You know, for myeloma, you could sort of make the comparison. That's the, the another scenario that we often kind of consider in a wholly separate category mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. this. And in those patients, it's sort of like universally accepted that, yes, if they're on an IMID and they're on a steroid, they're on prophylaxis of some type. And there, the incidence of VTE is like 20% Correct. or something. And that's a little more concerning to me. And I think that makes people buy into it a lot more. But then i just also add, though, in that setting, there are a lot
0: of people who just go with aspirin.
1: Yeah and I mean that's all based on trials in the early 2000s I believe yeah. uh, and and that's sort of in flux too as, as of right now because doaks are being tried in this same setting mm-hmm. for myeloma but that's just a much higher number to me than this I'll, I'll put it to them this way um, I
0: I, I I think that um, people clearly want to sell DOAX and if they want to sell DOAX, well, they don't need to run trials like this with where we're looking for asymptomatic blood clot in people who have cancer to get the market share. They have the Apple Watch, and they can stick to the Apple Watch. They're going to find tons of uh, low-frequency, asymptomatic, atrial fibrillation. They're going to get a huge market share that way. They don't need to pick upon um, these patients who happen to be suffering from cancer. What do you think, Dr. Olson? Yeah. ways they can get that market share come on leave, i think so leave leave these patients alone
1: you know it was an interesting in a, in a paper i just read recently they made an interesting point where um you know we have no problem giving prophylaxis with doax for like six weeks after people get hip replacements yeah just for routine ortho stuff and yeah. that you know to reduce the symptomatic vt incidence of like five percent yeah people have no problem with that but yet we we hem and haw about this for cancer patients where the risk could be even higher. I thought it was an interesting point to make, and it kind of put it in perspective a little bit. But then here, their absolute risk is two percent reduction, right? In symptomatic, so I think it's it doesn't
0: actually meet even the ortho standard. Yeah, yeah. So. And then the other thing about the ortho is they're looking to not get dinged. I think, uh, yeah, they don't want to minimize their complication. Yeah. I say, well, that's what the KOLs are saying, huh? Why don't we do this? I think my takeaway is you have a population that's dealing with a life. Uh, threatening and often life-limiting illness. Uh, the only time you should deploy a therapy is if you make them live longer or make them live better. Um, you uh, don't and should never screen for clot as the endpoint of a study. And if you're gonna screen for clot, then I want you to screen for bleeding too and do my FOBTs. And our GI <laughs> colleagues are gonna get very angry about that. Um, and, um, um, and the number needed to treat is very high. And we didn't talk about cost, but the cost is non-trivial, a few hundred dollars per month and yeah. taken for, what was the median duration of treatment here, six months or something?
1: Yeah, I mean, 40% of people in both trials, in both arms of both trials stopped. Yeah. And I think the biggest reason was like miscellaneous when I looked at the supplement. Probably because they're, um,
0: I mean, something happened in their clinical course and they don't need an anticoagulant on board. Yeah.
1: Well, it was sort of, it broke it down by they got hospitalized and had to interrupt it or they actually had a clot or they uh, bled and had to interrupt it. Or I think the, again, the biggest one was miscellaneous and I'm not sure what that means then.
0: You know, I wonder if one of the endpoints of these studies should also be like um, number of times procedures have to be rescheduled, number of times, um, you know, somebody came in for, uh, you know, a port placement, but they'd already been started on this or something like that, you know, to capture all of the ways in which anticoagulants can sort of affect your hospital care generally. So I guess I would say I veto... I veto these papers. Oh, you not only
1: disagree, you just veto.
0: I veto, I'm using a veto power because of, at least in the case of um, Cassini, because of screening for clot, which I, I find uh, unacceptable. Um, I, 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 the conclusion of the editorial is in conclusion, Avert and Cassini showed that thromboprophylaxis with direct oral anticoagulants in ambulatory patients with cancer was effective and safe. Um, I would say, question mark, question mark. Uh, um, um, oh, the other thing we didn't talk about was exclusion of patients with brain mats. And the fact that patients with hematologic malignancies, with the exception of lymphoma,
1: were excluded. Right, and one—I mean, and I think at Cassini, if I'm not mistaken, they had a the one of the biggest proportion of patients was lymphoma, Um, and that was not the case for Avert. Uh, But yeah, I mean, he malignancies are always underrepresented here, and that's you know they're problematic because they're always going to be, or they're very frequently going to be thrombocytopenic with all their aggressive regimens, and yeah. That's a common complaint with all these DOAC trials. Well, Dr.
0: Olson, thanks for coming on and taking us through this paper.
1: Yeah, I have to, uh, so there's two things I get from this too. One, this opens the door for me to make a new risk score. Okay, the, the Olson score. <laughs> Here comes the Olson risk score. Okay. I really do think though that um, you know this is gonna be a, a hard thing to predict in the future with all the these novel small molecule inhibitors and things that again, we just don't know what their thrombotic risk is and and that has to be taken into account. And so far, none of these these do, and I think we just don't have enough time and data to do it. Um, And two, this still highlights the need for a blood thinner that doesn't make you bleed. And that might be something along the lines of I see I see so some you other so work that we're doing some other,
0: I see I see work that I, I I struck down from being able to be discussed on this podcast maybe one day when <laughs> I actually have a phase two trial to talk about a randomized phase two sure sure randomized randomized um, but uh I guess I would say that you know you're onto something when it comes to the risk score um, if I were to make a plug for someone developing a risk score the Olson risk score here's what I would suggest you do the Olson risk score should be made in partnership with an EMR vendor like Epic And what the Olson risk score should include is one, the beacon plan for the patient. So then you can extract the information about the treatment. And two, you have the diagnostic code in the EPIC so you can extract information from the diagnosis. Three, it should draw upon variables that already exist in EPIC. So you're free to use neutrophil lymphocyte ratio, hemoglobin platelets, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And and, And I would say that you should try to avoid making a risk score that uses, you know, P-selectin or other assays that we don't really run, but I bet you get a risk score that actually draws upon variables in the EMR, has a prediction. You do a derivation validation cohort kind of study, get some AUC data. Um, Tell us about its discrimination and tell us about the risks in the highest risk categories. And then you start to use that as the inclusion criteria for a future study and then use an appropriate endpoint, which I think would be mortality, all cause, Um, really picking the high risk people and saying that by treating VTE, I'm going to improve all cause mortality because I'm going to avert fatal PE. Mm -hmm. That I think is the gold standard. The second best silver standard would be you can show that I'm going to improve quality of life. I'm going to follow these people and do really good EORTC, quality of life questionnaire and show that I'm averting clot that really does hurt people and I think you're on to something um, the challenge I think with with that is that you know a lot of people who do present with DVT when you do treat them they do get better so that's kind of an up a little bit of an uphill battle but yeah. um, but I think you're on to something by the new risk score
1: I mean look at the like you know the the old um, uh, uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center um the RCC risk score, or the prognostic score, mm-hmm. that was used in a lot of, you know, the earlier trucks. And now it's the, hang- uh, the IMDC score, uh-huh. and that pretty dramatically changes your prognosis when you calculate a score. And that's based on the, you know, additionally available variables of yeah. TKIs. It, that's, I think, the biggest, the biggest variable that changed there. So that's the same kind of thing that could happen as we evolve our cancer treatments, that this re risk could change pretty dramatically. That's a smart idea. Well, thanks, Dr. Olson. We'll One have day. you back for the
0: next uh, example of, <laughs> benign- I mean, classical hematology. Okay,
1: I think there should be some stuff in the pipeline that comes out soon, so we'll see. That's good. Thanks and for then, having me.
0: And then someday, when when you have an FDA approval in hand for an anticoagulant that reduces thrombotic risk but doesn't increase bleeding, I'm going to have you here, and we're going to really get through, get through, get get to discuss
1: that. That's what's going to keep me going. Through the long, long, hard nights of of doing these trials, <laughs> coming back to this plenary session. This, pl- of course. I mean, I think most people, when they envision the plenary
0: session at the end of the road, they're not thinking about this podcast, but they ought to be. They ought to be thinking. Oh, I didn't about even
1: something. think about the real plenary. I just think I want to be here. Oh, you this want to be is, here. This is the plenary session to me. The,
0: of course, the difference between this and the real plenary is the audience is much broader and right. and, 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 and much more important. I would say. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. you've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could we be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.